interest in the following audio recording produced by Chesterton House, a center for Christian studies at Cornell University. Support for Chesterton House comes entirely from listeners like you, and we invite you to help us continue making the recordings of past lectures available at no cost through a donation to the ministry. You can find additional resources and make a donation at www.chestertonhouse.org. This audio recording is copyrighted and unauthorized duplication is prohibited. Okay, here's our last session and in some ways perhaps the most sensitive. Since you have been raised with Christ, if anyone has a complaint against another, forgive each other. Just as the Lord forgave you, so you must also forgive. Paul says in Ephesians 2, we have been saved by grace through faith, and this is not our own doing, but the gift of God in Christ Jesus. Grace is a form of love. It's undeserved love. It's unconditional love. It's lavish love. It's poured out love. Grace is a form of love, and forgiveness is a form of grace. The first thing to say about forgiveness is that it is a generous act that an offended person, now we're talking about person to person, of course, all of this is predicated on God's forgiveness of us. It's a generous act by a victim to an offender to forgive. Forgiving the sins of another toward us is a gracious move. It's an act of generosity, as my friend Bob Roberts likes to say. And that's why we all admire this act, as when Pope John Paul II forgave his would-be assassin, Mehmed Ali Agha, we all admired those pictures of the Pope that appeared in the great newspapers and magazines of the world showing the Pope reaching out to this bewildered Muslim in his cell who is not all that familiar with gracious forgiveness. We all admire forgiveness until we have to do it. And then the trouble starts. Forgiving the sins of somebody who has hurt us is hard work. It's even hard work to get straight what exactly we are to do if we are to forgive somebody who has hurt us. In fact, nobody who thinks hard about forgiveness can avoid raising a lot of questions. You start a lot of rabbits when you start to think about this topic. And not all of them are going to be easily caught. And to see this, let's take a case. Suppose that you are a lonesome, middle-aged woman who lives in Ithaca, New York. You have finally met a suitable man. He speaks gently. He laughs musically. He reads widely. He walks you through spring air that's laden with the scent of a thousand lilacs. 
points out the nesting habits of finches, and particularly of the yellow ones. He relishes a good Sunday sermon by David Jones. And over the Sunday dinner that he has cooked for you, he recalls whole swatches of the sermon. He's almost unimaginably attentive. This wonderful man arouses in you such hope and love and longing, so much promise that you never do ask why he wants to arrange a joint banking account while the two of you are still on your honeymoon. After he cleans you out, he disappears immaculately and shows up on a most wanted list. It turns out that he has six aliases and two previous convictions for similar offenses. And now you have to face a terrible truth. You have been miserably betrayed, and you never saw it coming. In fact, one of the truths about competent con men is that they are so good at what they do that even after they've been revealed, their victims can sometimes not believe it. Now some questions. What would have to happen before you could forgive this louse? Would he have to repent? What if you never see him again? Could you forgive him anyway? As a Christian, must you forgive him? How soon? For his sake or for yours? What if you try to forgive him, but can't? Are you then forever on the outs with God? May your pastor, not David, some other pastor, may your pastor who is sedate in his wisdom and serene in his own marriage, may he urge you to forgive? Might that not just add a load of guilt to your trauma when you can't do it? Or can't do it yet? Suppose you eventually do succeed by the grace of God in forgiving this traitor. Would that mean that you have to take him back into your life somehow? Would it mean that you like him better than you used to? Would it mean that you would refuse to testify at his bigamy trial? These are some of the questions that arise whenever Christians begin to think seriously about the New Testament injunction to forgive those who hurt us. You can read all about it in books by Lewis Smead, by L. Gregory Jones, by Robert Roberts. These writers do not nearly always agree, and I'm certainly not here this afternoon to try to adjudicate the debate between them. But the first thing in any case to see about forgiving 
a person who has offended us is that it is an act of imitation. God forgives us offenders. In the act of justification, we are saved by grace through faith. And it, that is the whole thing, being saved by grace through faith, this is not our own doing, but the gift of God in Christ Jesus. So when we forgive somebody who has offended us, we are imitating God. We are showing that we have been in union with Jesus Christ. As you know, there's an alarming hookup in the Lord's Prayer between God's forgiveness of us and our forgiveness of others. O God, forgive us our sins as we have also forgiven those who have sinned against us. Charles Williams said that that conjunction, as, is one of the most alarming words in the New Testament. Forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who sin against us. Things do not get easier at the end of the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus immediately turns to the one petition in his prayer that he knows is going to cause his disciples consternation. The petition on forgiveness. And he elaborates it alarmingly by saying, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, then, then neither will your heavenly Father forgive yours. An incredible urgency to our forgiveness of those who sin against us. Our very destiny depends on it. Jesus seems to be saying. And this stringent way of interpreting our Lord appears to be confirmed by his parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18. How often must I forgive a member of the community who sins against me? Peter wants to know as many as seven times. And Jesus says, Peter, you're thinking small. Think big. Not seven times, but seventy times seven. And then follows the parable of the unforgiving servant, the servant who had been forgiven, but who would not forgive his fellow servant. And Jesus has something very pointed to say about that. So, forgiveness is an act of generosity on our part when we have been offended against, but it appears to be a commanded act of generosity, which raises the stakes enormously, and alarmingly, and causes us to do some serious thinking. Now, why all the urgency about this? Why all the fuss? Why is Jesus so intent upon impressing on his disciples how important it is that they forgive those who offend them? I think the reason is that both Confessing our sin to God or to another and forgiving the sin of those who have hurt us. Both of these are 
prime ways of dying with Jesus Christ. It kills us to say to somebody, I hurt you and what I did was wrong. I should never have done it. I'm deeply sorry that I did it. Kills us to do that. And it may kill us as well to say to somebody who has hurt us, you hurt me. But I forgive you. I'm going to let this go. I am going to offer you forgiveness, just as I have been forgiven. Both of these acts, both of confession and of forgiveness, may be mortifying to us maybe ways of softening our hard heart, maybe ways of making ourselves ready for the next installment of God's grace. Forgiveness is self-sacrificial. And the main thing we sacrifice, I want to say, again, following my friend Bob Roberts, the main thing we sacrifice when we forgive another person is the anger we have a right to. If somebody truly offends us, it will provoke anger in us. And I want to say to you this afternoon, as soberly as I can, this is an anger you have a right to. It's a form of indignation, justified anger, righteous anger which really amounts to passionate againstness. You are passionately against what somebody has done to you. There are Christians who think that we should never be angry. I don't agree, and I don't think it's biblical. Paul says in Ephesians 4, be angry, but don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Which, by the way, is psychologically good, too, because you're not going to sleep if you're fuming all night. Now, there's lots of anger that we don't have a right to. Obviously, anger is often listed as one of the seven deadly sins. We are not entitled to anger at somebody else's good fortune. You get a B plus, somebody else gets an A minus, you are not entitled to anger over that. The name of such anger is envy, and it's a nasty sin. We are not entitled to fume every time a light turns yellow. Lights have a way of doing that. It's in their nature. And being the sort of irritable, fuming person who gets set off every time a light turns yellow, is not a Christian way to be. We're not entitled to that irritability. Envy, quarreling, hostility, slander, terrorism, war, all kinds of stuff that's fueled by anger. We, a lot of it is unrighteous someplace. So is a lot of angry politics. A lot of us have been dismayed at angry politics and angry talk shows about angry politics. People shouting through each other, absence of giving anybody the benefit of the doubt, doing all the stuff that I talked about as being judgmental, hasty judgments, uncharitable judgments, presumptuous judgments. 
is fall to our politics. Alas. But some anger is proper and right. I'll say more about that in the sermon tomorrow morning. Someone cheats you out of your job. Someone blasphemes God in your presence knowing how much it will hurt you. Think of some of the films of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa of some years ago when Bishop Tutu was presiding. And some of the stories of some of the victims. A woman whose offenders took her out to a shack far from a town and said, you can scream all you want, nobody's going to hear you. They told her what they were going to do to her. They told her how she would feel about it afterwards. And then they did it. I want to say to you, brothers and sisters, that for that Christian woman to drop the anger she had a right to was a God Almighty, Holy Ghost miracle. And she was unable to do it. So it is possible when God is in the picture and it is possible when we do our end as well. The main thing we do in attempting to forgive somebody who has hurt us is to make a move against our own anger so that we may drop it. God is in this. If God is not in this, it's not going to happen. God is in this at every step. But there is something that we can do as well. There's a craft to forgiveness. A craft that Christians have been practicing over centuries when they have wanted very much to obey our Lord, to show that they are in union with Him, to show that they have the image of God, to show that they have been born again by the Spirit of God. A craft to dropping anger we have a right to. And the craft consists largely once more, following my friend Bob Roberts, who has taught me a lot about this, the craft consists largely in deliberately bringing to mind considerations, thoughts, that we know will have a good chance at softening our hard heart toward the offender. Deliberately bringing to mind heart-softening considerations that may have a shot at enabling us to drop the anger we have a right to. Now, what are some of these heart-softening considerations that we may deliberately bring to mind? A first one is maybe the central one in the Gospels that Jesus is one way or another always pointing to as in the parable of the unforgiving servant. The first heart-softening consideration when we're trying to forgive somebody who has hurt us is to bring to mind this. I, too, am a sinner. Much in need of forgiveness. God has forgiven me. How fitting it would be 
if I in turn were to forgive those who have hurt me. That, I take it, is the burden of the forgiveness petition in our Lord's Prayer and of the parable of the unforgiving servant. I, too, am a sinner. I have been forgiven much. How fitting it would be if I, in turn, were to pass this grace along to those who have offended me. The idea here is that from those to whom much has been forgiven, much will be required in grace as well as in everything else. Second, I may bring to mind, and this is especially true in cases of family memberships and friends, the offender and I have a long relationship. We have shared stories. We have shared history. We have shared memories. All of these things are imperiled if I do not forgive. But all these things, the memories, the history, all these things are precious to me. I don't want to lose them. I want these things to continue, so I will forgive so that we may live another day in our relationship. Now let me point out at this stage something that is very important. I want you to know that I know this. Namely, that wily offenders will turn many of these heart-softening considerations against us. A wily offender, knowing how much the relationship means to you, may even remind you of it and say, look, it's over if you don't forgive me. I know that. There is nothing gracious that a wily offender cannot corrupt and puts right back at you. I know that. But I'm still saying that in cases in which a relationship is important, regardless of how the offender is behaving, you may want to forgive so that the relationship may continue. This is entirely consistent with what I said this morning about the need on occasion to resist an offender rather than submitting. And I'll say more about that in a minute. Third, I may bring to mind that the offender, though he is to blame, may not be entirely to blame for his offense. He is to blame or there's nothing to forgive. Then there's only something to excuse, something to overlook, something to condone. He is to blame. But perhaps he's not entirely to blame. Are there mitigating circumstances? The person who blew his stack and called me something nasty, is this a guy who has been struggling with his anger his whole life? Is this a person who was born hot and his whole life has been trying with the grace of God, with whatever muscle he could bring against his own anger to control it. 
temperament may be a mitigating circumstance. You know, the ancient Greeks had a whole theory about temperament, about our underlying inclinations and tendencies and dispositions. They thought they could explain a whole lot of character and a whole lot of human behavior on the basis of what they called humors, which are which they conceived of as fluids that flow in people. So if a person is optimistic, they said, well, this person is sanguine. He must have a whole lot of extra blood in him. The more blood, the more optimistic. Here's a person who is angry all the time. This person must have an extra supply of bile. That's why he's so bilious, so angry. Um, they saw a person who is slow and lazy. They said, oh boy, this person is phlegmatic. He must be full of phlegm. Got way too much phlegm in him. Now, you know, the problem here is that these ancient Greeks turned psychology into a subdiscipline of hydraulics. The truth in what they had to say is that temperament can be seen really early in kids. If you have biological kids and have more than one, you can see differences in temperament, sometimes from very early on. And those differences in temperament may persist. And if a person is born bilious, born hot, this is a person who in the eyes of God, if he is merely civil, makes news in heaven. Because there is a triumph in this man's life. And if this guy loses it and calls you something nasty, it's going to be very different in your assessment of how you think about it than if this is a controlled, calm, rational person who thought for a long time and then delivered a dagger. Another person's temperament may be a mitigating factor that I will deliberately bring to mind and I'm trying to soften my heart against him as an offender. A person's upbringing may have something to do with it too. I'm on a city street. I get mugged by some emotionless teenager. When it comes time for his hearing, I discover that this is a kid who has been more beat up than brought up who has never known anything except noise and violence in his life, you can bet that I'm going to bring this to mind. It doesn't let him off the hook. He did something criminal. He did something hurtful. Um, he's going to have to pay a price for it. There are consequences for this. I know all that. But in my attempt to soften my anger against him and maybe to drop it, I will bring this mitigating circumstance to mind that this kid didn't really know anything else. It doesn't absolve him, but it helps me to think about it. Fourth, and again, I am wholly aware that offenders may turn every one of these things against us. Number four, am I partly complicitous in the offense against me? Wily offenders will, will ride this one to death. 
the fact that I beat you up is your fault. You provoked me. You acted as if I didn't have a right to do it. You exerted your will as if you have a will in this marriage too. But at least in less toxic circumstances, we may sometimes conclude that we ourselves played a role. My teenage boy um, doesn't make some of his appointments, including some of his appointments with me. Where did he learn that? What about last year when I, planned, when I promised to make all of his home games and I made two? In a fight between a husband and a wife, it's usually the mature peacemaker who will reflect, let's say it's a guy, will reflect on whether he was partly complicitous. Did I just assume once again that my will has to be done? Did I just assume once again that my wife has no real voice in this matter? Am I partly complicitous? If I am, that is a heart-softening consideration that I will definitely bring to mind. Fifth. Is the offender repentant? And here let's make a distinction between an offender's remorse and an offender's repentance. Remorse is an emotion. Remorse means feeling bad when you have done something wrong. If the offender feels bad about having done something wrong, that might help me. And maybe not so much if he feels bad every time he does it. What I'm looking for then is repentance, which means a 180 degree turn in behavior. I don't want him to beat me and then feel bad and then beat me and then feel bad. No, I want him to stop beating me. I want repentance. I want full stream, full upstream repentance. If I get it, if I get not just remorse, but a real change in behavior, that will definitely help me in my attempt to drop anger that I have a right to. Why? I think we all know why. If the offender is repentant as well as remorseful, we know that the offender is now seeing his behavior from the same side of the line of scrimmage as we are seeing it. He is seeing it with our eyes. He sees how wrong and hurtful it is. He resents it as much as we do. And it helps us drop our anger. It also shifts the balance of power between us. If the offender used his intelligence or his emotional strength or his physical strength to hurt me, And now he comes to me and says, I hurt you by what I did and I'm very sorry 
and I'm not going to do that again. Well, now the power has shifted because now it is within my prerogative under God to dispense grace, which is a powerful thing to do. There's a juvenile court in Maryland that some time ago began to experiment with offering juvenile offenders a choice between being incarcerated for their offense or else going through a repentance ceremony. To go through a repentance ceremony, an offender has to come with a parent or a guardian or somebody representing them. The victim comes with a parent or a guardian somebody representing her, and the offender has to get on his knees in front of the victim, literally, and say to the victim, I hurt you by whatever it was, molesting you, let's say. I hurt you by molesting you. What I did was very wrong. I'm very sorry that I did it. I should never have done it. And I promise to never do that again. Interesting that in the account of this that I read, um, juvenile court officials report two things, two conclusions they have. One is that offenders who go through the repentance ceremony have a much lower rate of recidivism than those who just get chucked into jail second thing they notice is that a fair number of juvenile offenders would rather go to jail. So, so difficult to be hard when you're on your knees in front of a victim and saying how wrong you were. It's mortifying. It kills you to do this. But in the case of a Christian, it's the only hope in your life. Number six. Christians take a long view of history. Somebody offends us. Maybe we get this person's repentance, maybe not. Maybe this person dies before he can say how sorry he is. Maybe he's never sorry. Christians take a long view. We believe that in the end, evil cannot win. That Jesus Christ is Lord over all. That in the end, he combs out all the snarls in human history and dispenses the justice that never happened before. We believe in the judgment of God and a collateral consideration we may deliberately bring to our minds whenever we need to drop anger that we have a right to. Is that God is the perfect and just judge. And even if we don't get justice, there will be justice. 
and we may entrust some of the untucked-in corners of our relationship with others to God. That's what the prayers and the Psalms of Lament are for. To take a long view means that we understand that we may not be able to get justice now, we may not be able to get the offender's repentance, but we may nonetheless, by the grace of God, drop the anger we have a right to, trusting that in the end, God will sort it all, all out, and now we don't have to live with our anger for all the time. I think that forgiving those who have offended us is primarily an act of grace, an act of generosity, but it is not wrong to bring to mind that when you do it, you'll start to sweep nights. That's the way it is with God. Do what's right, and it turns out also to be what's wise. Do what's right, and it turns out to be one of the things that makes for peace. Do the hard thing, and it turns out that you end up rising with Christ. Forgiveness is a form of grace, which is a form of love. I'd like to say just a couple of things about the questions I raised at the outset, and then I'll stop, maybe in about seven or eight minutes. The first thing is something I mentioned just a moment ago, that forgiveness is primarily an act of grace and generosity, but it also has wonderful side effects. And it's not wrong to be conscious of those side effects. There are now studies by psychologists about what happens to people's blood pressure when they drop anger they have a right to. It goes down. What happens to people's outlook on human life when they drop anger they have a right to? It goes up. What happens to people's general capacity for coping with life's vicissitudes when they drop anger they have a right to? It strengthens. These are not the reasons to do it. These are all wonderful byproducts of the real reason to do it, which is that we are in union with Jesus Christ and we ourselves have been forgiven. But God's way is so gracious that if we do what's right, God will bring some wonderful things to us. Second observation. Notice that forgiveness is a necessary condition for reconciliation with the offender but it's not a sufficient one. In order for there to be full reconciliation, we need more than my willingness to drop my anger. We need the offender's repentance. There may be occasions when I will forgive an offender even without his repentance. He dies. He moves away. He doesn't think he did anything wrong, and he never will. I'm not going to be stuck with my anger for my whole life. I'm going to drop it using the heart softening considerations that I can use, short of his repentance. But if he does repent, then we have not only my forgiveness, we have his repentance, and that's what enables true reconciliation. 
You can't get reconciliation, full reconciliation, without both things, repentance and forgiveness. And here's where third parties have to be a little careful. Parents, where squabbling kids are concerned, brothers and sisters, where squabbling siblings are concerned, pastors, teachers, wiser and older friends. Third parties need a little care here. It sometimes will happen that a person gets offended by somebody, and the third party, hoping to be helpful, says to the offended, the victim, why don't you forgive him? Uh, that's what Jesus wants, and you'll feel a lot better. If the third party has any leverage at all on the offender, that's the person the third party needs to be talking to. The ball is in his court. It's his move to repent. And third parties who have leverage on both and talk only to the victim, I think are skipping a step. They need to talk as well and first to the offender. And then maybe in due course, the victim may be, by the grace of God, enabled to drop anger. She has a right to. Third, forgiveness has mainly to do with a move against my anger. It also has something to do, at least, with a move against my memory. Memory is such a huge component of who we are that when we lose it, we lose our identity. There may be some of us in this room who have experienced transient global amnesia. It's a benign uh, neurologic psychiatric diagnosis. It comes up upon somebody suddenly that they suddenly can't remember anything that has recently happened to them. They may be able to remember a few long-term things, but they can't remember anything that happened today or yesterday. Uh, some vessel in the brain goes into spasm and it wipes out short-term memory. If this has happened to you, or if it has happened to somebody you love, you know how scary it is. Because memory is such a big part of who we are. By the time you're my age, it's about three-quarters of who you are, your memory. When you go to forgive somebody, you make a move not only against your anger, but also against your memory. And you wonder, how can this be? How can a person make a move against memory, which sort of comes and goes, you would think? But there are things to do. Somebody offends you. You refuse to nurture your sense of offense. Somebody offends you, you know, it's like bringing your tongue to a sore place in your mouth. You want to keep working that sore place. But what if you refuse to do it? What if psychologically you muscle this memory aside? Some people try to put it in a black box, seal it. Just refuse to dwell on it. Refuse to discuss it with others. One of the ways to keep a painful memory alive. Every time you're with somebody, you say, you you remember what that skunk did to me. 
None of us does ourselves a service with this because it keeps the pain alive longer than it needs to be alive. You know that when the Bible describes God's treatment of our sins, it sometimes tells us that God buries them in the heart of the sea. He doesn't want to remember them. He remembers them no more. It's not as if God, if you asked, uh, do you recall what he did on the 3rd of July? And that God would say, no, no, I can't recall any of that. No, it means that it's not an active memory for God. It's lost all its juice because of Jesus Christ's work. There is something finite and similar that we can do with our own memories of offenses against us. Refusing to dwell on them, refusing to discuss them with anybody, letting them wither and eventually fade, which they will do. Fourth, how about saying the words to an offender, I forgive you. If the offender is remorseful and repentant, they can be some of the most powerful words in human language. But what if the offender doesn't think he did anything wrong? What if the offender thinks you did something wrong? Then for you to say, I forgive you, sounds to the offender like, I accuse you. I feel sorry for you. And we may be further back than before we spoke. I think the words, I forgive you, are a lot like the words, I do, or I love you. These are words that may, in certain circumstances, require a little thought. Fifth, two more minutes. I think it is pretty clear that we may forgive a person in the sense that I'm talking about it, that is, to drop anger we have a right to, and still not trust this person, or at least for a while. One of my children uh, steals family money for drugs. I think it would be possible for me to drop my anger against my child, and also in the future, not to leave family money lying around. I think it's also entirely possible to drop anger you have a right to and also require the offender to take the consequences of what he has done. One of your children gets drunk and smashes the family car. In due course, after you have seen to your child's physical welfare, and all the other things that need to happen first. You drop your anger against your child for the sake of your relationship and for the sake of your relationship to Jesus Christ. But your child is going to pay the difference in, in insurance. Your child is maybe going to pay for the deductible on your car repair. You are not going to hire a smart lawyer to see to it that your child does not get a suspension of his license. Your child, whom you have forgiven and loved, will take the consequences of his actions, and it may be 
very, very important for your child's growth that he does. Sixth and last. Forgiving a person who has offended me does not mean, in my judgment, that our relationship then goes right back to where it was before. There are cases, wonderful cases, in which somebody offends and somebody forgives and the relationship becomes stronger at the mended place. Wonderful cases of this. Think of Jacob and Esau. Think of Joseph and his brothers. Think of Jesus and Peter. It is possible for a relationship to become stronger after an offense and a forgiveness. But alas, this side of the new heaven and new earth, sometimes you get part of it back, but not nearly all of it. I drop my anger against a person who has truly offended me, but I may not trust him, at least for a time. I drop my anger against this person and in civil to him, I will take the Lord's Supper with him. But this is not a person I'm going to easily laugh with. This is not a person who gets my secrets now. This is a person of whom I'm just a little bit wary. It's too bad. But that's the way it is. And in the new heaven and new earth, there may be joyous reconciliations that we can never yet imagine. But for now and until then, we get two-thirds of a loaf and not the whole thing. And it is, in my opinion, futile to believe that we will or must have the whole thing short of the new heaven and new earth. Since you have been raised with Christ, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with forgiveness. Forgiveness fits people who have been raised with Christ. Forgiveness is part of the family uniform of the people of God.